Leviticus 16, 11 to 28. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This is the word of the Lord. You know, as we move to Good Friday and Easter, what uh, I thought we would do for the month of March is we're looking at passages in the Old Testament that point to the cross and illuminate the meaning of the death of Jesus. And I know the book of Leviticus is not the easiest book to read, and uh, even if you have been uh, part of a Christian church and a Christian for a long time, there's probably a good chance that you haven't really read it uh, fully because it's it's a book that's filled with a lot of instructions and a lot of laws pertaining to cleanliness and that which is unclean. But at the same time, this is a, you know, there's so much beauty in it, and my goal is going to be to show you how beautiful this book is, and especially this passage. And my fear is that this will sound a little bit more like a lecture or a a teaching rather than a sermon, but I'm going to encourage you to try to uh, make extra effort today to uh, follow along and engage because I think if we put the uh, the mental energy to see the beauty of this passage and see how uh, how it really reveals some amazing things in Scripture, uh, we will be greatly blessed and greatly encouraged. Now, let me just uh, offer a quick review of the overall structure of this passage. We said that there are three ceremonial acts that take place, or three religious rites that are taking place here. And uh, the first one was an entrance rite. The second one was a cleansing rite. And that's, we looked at those two in the previous message. But the third ceremonial act that we see in this passage is something that we call, we're going to call the expulsion rite. And that's what this message is going to be based on today. Now, there are two goats that are in this uh, ceremony that's taking place on the Day of Atonement, which Jewish people call Yom Kippur. Uh, the first goat is a goat that is sacrificed, and the blood of the goat is put on the altar. But the second goat is what we read in our passage here today in verses 20 to 22. You know, in this expulsion rite, you have this live goat that is presented, and then Aaron, who is a high priest, he lays both of his hands on the, the head of the goat, confesses the iniquities of the people of Israel, and that is supposed to, in a way, symbolize this transfer of sin or this transfer of guilt to the goat. And the goat is expelled and cast out into the wilderness, which is also symbolizing the expulsion of sin out of the presence of God and out of this uh, uh, sanctified or holy community that is supposed to be set apart for uh, God alone. 
And we get the summary of this right in verse 22 where it says, The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So what is going on here? A couple weeks ago I mentioned, you know, the first five books of the Bible which uh, scholars call the Pentateuch. It's the first five books, Penta 5, the first five books of the Bible. It's probably better to be understood as a narrative whole. So we don't want to just understand each individual book separately on its own, but we want to understand the first five books uh, as a whole. And it's kind of like uh, the Rocky series. Uh, If you watch Rocky, uh, each individual movie stands on its own. Each individual movie has its own storyline. But there is this common unifying theme that draws the entire series together. So for example, the theme of, what, overcoming odds? being an underdog, continuing to get up and fight, that's a theme that you see overall in the entire series and even in the latest iteration of Creed. In the, in the sixth Rocky movie, Rocky Balboa, and if you're not a fan of the Rocky movies, my wife is not, and uh, it shocked me that she hasn't seen Rocky, uh, the Rocky movies. But anyway, in the sixth movie, uh, Rocky movie, uh, he makes that very clear. And this is what Rocky, played by Sylvester Stallone, says. He says, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, nobody's going to hit as hard as life, but it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward, that's how winning is done. And, you know, with movies uh, or music in the background, that's going to pump you up, right? That, that, I think, statement, that quote in Rocky Balboa, which maybe in Stallone's mind was supposed to be the last Rocky movie, that, that actually summarizes the theme of all the movies. And so you kind of have to look at the Rocky movies as this narrative whole as well. And it's the same thing in the Bible. It's the same thing, especially in the first five books of the Bible. Each individual book has its own storyline, but the first five books of the Bible have these broad themes that we have to understand that we're going to find everywhere in Scripture. So what is one of the broad themes in the Pentateuch? And it's one that you actually find often in Scripture, and it's a theme of homecoming and exile. Okay, Homecoming and exile. So the Bible starts with Adam. Things are well. Serpent enters into the Garden of Eden. Adam disobeys, and what happens? He is exiled because of his disobedience to God. And there's this common pattern that just repeats over and over in the biblical narrative where God, he takes a step towards his people, but then they disobey or they sin, uh, they rebel against God, and they get exiled again. And the question for us is, how does God take a step towards his people? How does God take a step towards us? Well, in the Old Testament, this is how he did it. He would give instructions to build a tabernacle, which would eventually be a temple. And that tabernacle or that temple was meant to remind the people of Eden, the Garden of Eden. Now, I should also say, by the way, there are precursors to the tabernacle. And, uh, for example, Noah's Ark, a lot of scholars will say the Ark, the way that it's described, it parallels descriptions of the tabernacle. You know, in the story, God tells Noah to Enter the ark, and the reason that it gives is because Noah is righteous before him, or literally in the Hebrew it says, for I have seen that you are righteous before my face. And that's, that's an idiom for you're righteous in my presence. You can come into my presence. So even there, the text hints that the ark functions 
as a type of tabernacle where God would be present. God creates the world. God creates the Garden of Eden uh, out of a place that is void and full of chaos. God creates order out of disorder. How does the ark function? Well, it's a place of refuge from the flood, from the chaos of the waters, and, uh, which is a literary symbol of judgment and chaos. And God creates the world and fills it with the habitation. And what is Noah called to do? He is called to fill the ark with habitation as well. And these, that's just one example, but you see those kind of things all throughout the Old Testament. And uh, the ark is, and the tabernacle, they're ultimately meant to point to the Garden of Eden, the place where Adam was uh, first expelled because of it, his disobedience. Now, what does Eden represent? Eden represents home. It's supposed to be home for Adam and Eve, for humanity. Now, what do you think of when you think of home? Home is more than just a roof over your head, right? I know many of you travel for work, and maybe during the week you're staying at a hotel. You have a roof over your head, but it doesn't feel like home. Home is more than just having a bed to sleep in. Uh, Home is more than shelter. Home represents a place that offers safety, that offers refuge, that offers community. Home is a place where we feel like we belong. Home is a place where we feel like we can root our life. And I know New York has a lot of transplants, and when you first move into the city, of course, it doesn't feel like home. And you can tell that it doesn't feel like home because during holidays and during vacations, the way people talk, they'll say, oh, for the holidays, I am going home, as if New York is not a home. But what happens after a while is New York becomes your home. And the way New York becomes your home is you start to build meaningful relationships. You find a community in which you feel like you can belong. You get more comfortable with uh, the life and the values and the culture of the city. Uh, You start to feel safer in the city. And all of a sudden, a new place like New York City can become your home. Conversely, I know there are a lot of people who struggle in New York because they never get to that point where they feel like they are home. They always feel like they're a loner. That feeling of loneliness, that feeling of anxiety, that feeling of discomfort, that feeling of maybe danger and unease is due to the fact that we don't feel like we are home and we don't have a home. You know, there's a spiritual equivalent to that, <clears throat> that feeling of homelessness and that the Bible says is caused by sin. And you see, home, again, is not necessarily a physical place and it's not necessarily something that gives us a roof over our heads, but home ultimately is where God dwells. That's the definition of home for us and for humanity. And since God dwells there, we have meaningful relationship with him. We have security. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have everything that makes home a home. And when sin enters into the world... The punishment is essentially this, exile. You can't be home anymore. And so the question is this, the question of life, and I think the Bible can be boiled down to this, how do we get home? How do we get home? How does God bring us back home? You know, the construction of the tabernacle is the uh, initial answer. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to use multimedia. I prepared a... some images, and I think this actually helps. Let's see if it works. Ah, great, it works. You know, I thought the visual presentation would actually help understand. So if you look at this uh, picture, and if this is like the Garden of Eden, and you have the Tree of Life, uh, you know, after sin, uh, Adam and Eve, they are expelled eastward, and God says, I'm going to put cherubim 
and a flaming sword to guard the way so you can't go back home, right? That's essentially what God is saying in the Garden of Eden. Now, if we look at the next picture, this is essentially what God is saying through the tabernacle, okay? He's saying you move westward towards this room, which is the Holy of Holies, and what is on the curtains? The curtains, there's a picture of cherubim, right? Again, pointing to the fact that this is what is guarding the way to God's presence. But God, on the Day of Atonement, what he says is, you can enter into the Holy of Holies right through this entire process on the Day of Atonement. And it's essentially saying, he's saying this, you can come home again. You can taste what it is like to come home as you walk in the opposite, the westward, right, as you go into the opposite direction. Now, you read books like Exodus, and you say, why are there so many instructions, so many detailed instructions on how to build this thing? Because it's more than just a building, but there is deep theological meaning in what God wants to communicate through this building. And he's saying this, through this ceremony of the Day of Atonement, he's saying, this is how you can come home. This is how I'm going to enable you to taste home. This is God taking a step towards us in spite of our sin and trying to reach out and bring us back to him. And this finally brings us to this passage today on the expulsion of the goat. You know, the purpose of the second goat, as we saw and as we read before, is to bear the iniquities of Israel's sin. And uh, this is actually where we get that phrase scapegoat. It comes from this passage. Uh, What is a scapegoat? Uh, A scapegoat is essentially somebody who takes the blame for some kind of offense or some kind of evil act. And we always feel like we need a scapegoat, right? And I'm not even referring to the necessity of scapegoat in any kind of religious context, but generally in life, there always has to be somebody to blame for something that goes wrong or something that is wrong or something evil that is done. Why do we feel that? I think we feel that because deep down we all understand that every or any kind of wrongdoing has to be punished if there is going to be any true sense of justice. Someone has to be blamed for any kind of offense or evil act if there's going to be justice. And you see examples of this every single day in the news. There's a story, I think it was last week, I don't know if you heard in Florida, there was a bridge that collapsed and I believe... Uh, six people were killed, uh, or at least the time I read the story, they, were, they found six people uh, that had been killed. And the governor of Florida, his response was, we're going to investigate this. We're going to see why the bridge collapsed. We're going to see why these people died, and somebody is going to be held accountable. Right? He's looking for somebody to blame for what happened. When there's scandal in a corporation or an organization, and lately <laughs> it feels like every week we're reading about that, whether at Nike, Michigan State University, Louisville, dozens of other places. What do people want? People say somebody needs to be punished for the wrongdoing that's happening. Somebody needs to lose their job. Somebody needs to go to jail. Something has to happen. Somebody needs to be blamed for that wrongdoing. And if nobody is blamed, then we're deeply dissatisfied because there's a sense that justice has not been done you know, it works the same way uh, with respect to God. You know, a scapegoat serves the function of receiving the blame, but we also have to recognize something very important, that a scapegoat is different from somebody who just receives the blame because a scapegoat didn't do anything to deserve the blame in the first place. A scapegoat is someone who is actually not guilty of their wrongdoing and yet takes the blame 
for the wrongdoing to satisfy the requirements of justice. Yeah, I read a story. I forget where I read this story, but I read a story once where a manager at work, uh, they were working on some big project, and one of, um, I guess, the newer entry-level people made a big mistake and uh, messed up the project. And because this person was you know, kind of new at the job, uh, the chances of them being fired was much higher than the manager. So what the manager decided to do, the manager said, uh, I'm not going to let this person, person take the blame, but I'm going to take the blame. I was leading the project. I'm responsible. So when I go to the client or when I go to upper management, I'm going to tell them it's my fault. And this manager decided to be the scapegoat in order to protect the person that uh, made the mistake. That, that's what a scapegoat does. A scapegoat satisfies the desire for justice for, by taking the blame, even though they don't necessarily ultimately deserve it. When Aaron, he lays both hands on the head of this goat and confesses the sins of Israel, it is a transfer of the blame to the goat. It's a transfer of the blame of the sins of Israel to this goat. And this goat would bear the iniquities of Israel on itself. And what is the punishment? The punishment is exile. Exile. The text says the goat would go free in the wilderness. And if you're not familiar with biblical imagery, I wouldn't blame you that it doesn't sound that bad. Oh, goat, go to the wilderness. It's like a safari. Uh, Go free. But, you know, in biblical imagery, wilderness is a place... um, that is charged with symbolic meaning. The wilderness is a place of suffering, of hardship, of death. Unclean things get expelled into the wilderness. Dead bodies were considered to be unclean in Jewish law, and they would get burned in the wilderness. Lepers were considered unclean under Jewish law, and they would, be ha- they would have to live in the wilderness because the wilderness was a place that was outside of the city gates. The wilderness was a place that was outside and away from the presence of God, and from the people of Israel. So anyone who did something to become ceremonially unclean would have to go into the wilderness until they were clean again, and then they could enter. And you see, even in the ceremony, the person who lets the goat go has to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water before he is allowed to come into the camp. You see, the wilderness is a symbol of exile, and you would be expelled into the wilderness away from the presence of God, away from the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. And the expulsion of this scapegoat was a way of saying this, that this goat will take the blame for the sins of Israel and will experience the punishment for the sins of Israel by being exiled into the wilderness. You know, we're looking at the cross and we're doing it through the lens of the Old Testament And I know for many of us, maybe the Old Testament seems unfamiliar and disconnected from from our daily realities. But here's why the Old Testament is important. You know, it points to a greater reality, and it points to a greater reality in terms of the meaning of the death of Jesus. Because we ask ourselves, what did Jesus' death really and truly accomplish for us? And here's what it accomplished. Homecoming. We get to go home. Do you know how wonderful that is, that we get to go home and be with the Lord? You know, it's probably hard to understand how wonderful that is unless you've actually experienced what it's like to be without home, unless you've experienced a kind of homelessness. Perhaps some of you have experienced that. Perhaps you have been uh, short on money and you've 
experienced life homeless. Maybe some of you, when you were young, uh, you did something really bad and you got kicked out of the house and you experienced what it's like to get kicked out of your home. You know how terrible that feels. And at the same time, if you have been welcomed back in or if you have been provided a true home, you also know how sweet it feels to be welcomed back or to be provided a home that perhaps you felt like you didn't deserve. Uh, You know, one of the things I do uh, with my oldest daughter, we read through the children's Bible. uh, And I'm not, you know, I'm not super godly because we haven't, like, read through the entire thing, but we kind of start at the beginning many, many times. So we've read the story of Adam and Eve probably the most. Uh, And I was trying to explain to her... um, you know, what the story was talking about when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned. And I'm trying, I'm trying to explain to her the, the concept of exile. So I say to her, uh, you know, because they didn't disobey God, God had to give them a time out, right? And, uh, you know, that seemed to connect with her in terms of uh, understanding the, uh, the pain of exile. Because in my household, don't judge me as a parent, by the way, but <laughs> let me just tell you how I do it in my household. You know, if I'm going to discipline my daughter, and I give her a timeout. I say, go to your room, right? Go to your room. She's like screaming, no, go to your room. And I, I say, you know, I don't care what you do in there. You can play with your toys. All right, don't judge me. I, you can play with your toys, but just stay in your room. You need to cool off. No, no. It takes her like 30 minutes to actually do the timeout. You know, I, I wondered... Um, why does she hate to be in her room so much? Because she has things to do there, right? She has toys to play with. And I think part of the pain of being in timeout for a little child is you are at least temporarily cut off from your mom, from your dad, and in our case, from sister. Uh, You're kind of exiled to be by yourself for a period of time. And uh, you might have all the toys in the world, but still, you don't want to be cut off and separated from the ones that you depend on and the ones that you love. Exile is a miserable, miserable experience because of that, because it is a disconnection from the very presence of God, the one who gives us life and the one whom we need. And here's the thing. You know, this is, this is the lie of the world that we oftentimes buy into. We can have all the toys that we want, We can have our career, we can have our money, we can have our nice apartments, whatever it is that we typically seek after. But if we have these things and we are still in exile, we will still be messed up inside. Because God created us to be at home with him. Our longing deep down is ultimately to be home with him. You know, it might not be apparent, but I think that's the root of all of our issues, not to oversimplify things. Our insecurity, our loneliness, our depression, our shame, our guilt, our anxiety, our anger, everything else that uh, the modern world oftentimes categorizes as a psychological issue, I think is ultimately a spiritual issue. We feel these things because either we are spiritually homeless or we don't know the home that we have been given in the person of Jesus Christ. Our deepest need is a spiritual homecoming. And that's what the cross does. That's what the meaning of death, the death of Jesus does. The cross gives us a home. It makes us a way, it gives us a way to be free from our eternal 
spiritual timeout. It opens up the way for us to be with God. How? Because Jesus Christ was our scapegoat. He was our scapegoat. He bore our sins. He bore our iniquities. He experienced spiritual exile so that we could be welcomed home. You know, when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a cry of one who has been exiled from his very father. Father turned his face away because Jesus took the blame for our sin. Jesus was crucified outside of the camp, experienced expulsion into a cosmic wilderness so that we could be welcomed in, so that we could be welcomed home. And therefore, those of you who have put your faith in this crucified Messiah, know this, you will always have a home that is promised and secured for you in the work of Jesus Christ. And if you have a home, and if you recognize and you know you have a home in Christ, I tell you, friends, that makes all the difference in the world. Let me also just say this, by the way. I think that has a lot of implications for how we approach our life in the world as well. Because if our home is with the Lord in the new creation, and we're going to talk a little bit about that next week when we celebrate Easter Sunday, well, this world can't be our home then. I think that's why places like First Peter calls us sojourners and exiles in this world. What does that mean? Uh, well, it doesn't mean that we cut ourselves off from this world and we don't engage with this world. Uh, at the same time, it doesn't mean we assimilate and conform to the patterns of this world. If we fall into either extreme, then it hurts the mission of the church. But rather, I think what it means, and the best description of, at least of what I think it means, is probably found in uh, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles of Israel, and they're under Babylonian captivity. And what does God tell them? He doesn't say disengage from Babylon. Uh, he doesn't say become like Babylon, but rather he says this. And this is a, a verse that probably many of you, of you are familiar with. God says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What do we do as exiles? Well, if we have a home that is awaiting for us in the new creation, and if we are exiles in this world, what is the call of an, ex an exile in this world? I think it's to seek the good, the welfare, the shalom of the city, of the places that we dwell, to serve that means if you're in New York, you don't use the city for your own benefit, for your own gain, for your own careers, for your own financial well-being. But rather it means this, that you serve the people of the city and you seek their good and help make it flourish. That's a hard thing to do. If we've tried it, that's a hard thing to do. Our default mode is to think of ourselves first and not the interests of others, right? I know many of you know that that's what we ought to be doing. But the question is, how do we do that? How can we do that? How can we make the necessary sacrifices to do that? And I don't think there's an easy shortcut, but I'll say this. We have to deeply understand that this is not our home and we belong elsewhere. That the Lord has given us a home, an eternal home with him. 
And that's the only way that we are going to feel full, even when we feel like we have little. That's the only way we're going to feel like we're rich, even when we don't have a lot of money. That's the only way we're going to feel secure, even when we open up the newspaper and read news of things that are happening every single day that is a danger in the world. And when we actually feel that, experience that, believe in that, that's when we begin to pour ourselves out for others and begin to detach from this world a little bit so that we can serve it better. The cross is an amazing thing, and it has accomplished many, many amazing things. And one being this, friends, you are homeless no longer in Christ. There is a place where you belong. There is a place where you will dwell in the new creation, and that place will be without death, without sin, and most importantly, it will be in the full presence of the glory of the Lord, and we will dwell with him forever. Let's pray together.